0: Hello, and welcome to In Reality, the podcast about power, truth, and media. We have a very intriguing guest today in Joaquin Quininero candela an AI expert now at LinkedIn and an advocate for responsible use of AI. In his previous job, Joaquin also played a seminal role in making Facebook what it is today, so a tale of good intentions, unforeseen consequences, and power, truth, and media. I'm your co-host, Eric Schoenberg, former Editor-in-Chief and CEO of Inc. and Fast Company.
1: I'm Joan Donovan, the Research Director at Harvard Kennedy Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy.
0: So hello, Joan. Uh, It has been a very interesting week in the world of media and power. As everyone knows who hasn't been living under a rock, Elon Musk has made an offer to buy all of Twitter, not just dance around it and get a board seat at $53.40 a share of $43 billion. Um, that has filled the entire universe with uh, a mix of horror and amusement. Uh, and um, our, you know, our main take is sort of what it means for free speech, because Elon Musk is a notable advocate for free speech and has said many times on Twitter itself that he thinks Twitter needs to change its moderation policies and let anything go. But there's also quite a bit of turmoil about whether this could actually come off. What's your thinking? It's a
1: good question. You know, he's talked about buying it and then taking it private. The board seems to be willing to dilute their shares and and take the quote unquote poison pill uh, in order to make it more difficult for Musk to do such a thing. And I did watch the interview with Musk on TED, and it does seem that he has a very particular view of what it means to operate a platform and who it should be in the service of. And he's tweeted a bit about, you know, most of the top 10 largest uh, networked users on on Twitter don't even use the platform that much, you know, Bieber and uh, and. and Barack Obama, for instance, are just not out here tweeting all the time. Um, And he believes that Twitter is a public square and therefore there should be really unmitigated conversation happening. Uh, This strikes me as at complete odds with the CEO uh, of uh Twitter's mission here to promote healthy discourse. And so I don't have a lot of experience in boardrooms and with this kind of stuff, but you've learned a little bit, Eric, in your time. What do yeah. you think is, is happening here? And, and should the CEO be scared? Uh,
0: well, I think the CEO should definitely be scared. I think if if Musk comes in as the owner, I think the board and the management team, in which Musk has said he has very little faith, are probably about to walk the plank. I think that there's a real question, though, about whether he can pull it off. The company has adopted a poison pill, which would which would dilute his ownership and uh, and make it more difficult for him to uh, acquire the company. Poison pills are a fairly common thing, and sometimes they deter a hostile takeover, and sometimes they don't. But I also think that the, the board has a case from uh, Musk's own mouth, if you will, from that same TED talk that you watched. He said he's not interested in the economics of the company at all. And if you're a board member, that's what you're paid to pay attention to and if you're a shareholder that can't sound like good news
1: well yeah and it, and it strikes me too that if for however many tens of billions this is gonna shake out to be he wants twitter not a social media company right The, you know there are plenty of other alt platforms out there he could for that kind of capital build his own in whatever image he wants but there's something about the last decade of Twitter's accumulation of networks and uh, for what it's worth, the trustworthiness that they've built with legions of journalists and other key celebrity figures. His investment is more about Twitter and Twitter's reputation than it is about even serving the broadest possible need of a, of uh, his own t- in a social media company, right? And that strikes me as, you know, what, when we're gonna talk with Joaquin later, about uh, fairness flow and the role of algorithms in content moderation, we just don't know enough about what Musk thinks content moderation really should be like. And ultimately if we look at the kind of spaces that Musk inhabits online, he's often sharing memes from Reddit's are funny and Reddit's are memes and, and Reddit conspiracy, that you know he does want this really freewheeling, you know, everything out there kind of social media space. But I just don't think that that's gonna be what Twitter users ultimately would respond to. You know, it it strikes me that this would even open up a a pretty big wedge for another kind of social media platform to jump in the middle of.
0: That's interesting. Yeah, I agree with you that it is something about Twitter that has Elon's attention. Well, he's a big user of it himself, but also it has acquired a kind of symbolic meaning for people both on the left and the right about content moderation and the former president being thrown off off Twitter. It's interesting. Oh, who's that guy? Who's that guy again? <laughs> I, 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 I think the, the former guy.
1: <laughs> oh, the old guy. The old guy. Certainly not um, coming back to social media anytime soon
0: well he's got his own social media he's got his own social media (laughs) platform that's the thing is truth
1: social just is not twitter right i think that's the point here is that musk could go over and dominate any one of these other platforms um and build it up in his image of what he thinks is is viable but ultimately people don't you know there's a reason why aol couldn't really get over all of the spam that was circulating on it and you know that people are started to opt for other alternative email servers that had better spam protection had better calendar management and other kinds of bells and whistles it it strikes me that um truth social too is a casualty of of wanting to be an echo chamber built in the image of of an ideal of free speech but then when you have unbridled you know, unrelenting free speech, it just turns into like, pardon my French here, but poop memes, like it gets very scatological very quickly, and nobody likes it.
0: Uh, that is right. <laughs> and uh, the, uh, it's, it's interesting that you brought up Reddit as Musk's model, the former CEO of Reddit, Yishan Wong, talked about how a social media platform never works out the way you think it will that you are dragged into moderation, whether you want to or not, not because of your politics, but just to keep the platform from disintegrating for the reasons like the one you just mentioned.
1: Yeah, and I think as we imagine how these other platform companies are gonna respond to this, I you know, I, I could imagine other big platforms thinking about, well, do we have the capacity for short cable-like functions, you know, the way, the way in which twitter provides and you know bringing together these networks of folks um it's either that happens or nothing happens right as musk takes over he realizes that you know twitter's put together with a couple of elastic bands and some pencils and uh and the whole thing is you know too rickety to start to really dig into and redesign without doing an entire overhaul because You know, if you think about the way Twitter has been built, it's been built slowly over years, right? It's not the case that it was kind of shipped fresh in a box and and was rolled out as it was designed. And so it's actually not technologically easy to intervene in these ways and give people a good user experience of being on the platform. And we see how much they already struggle with content moderation. And so you can imagine that decimating those teams or not involving as many resources and content moderation that's been built up over the years could really uh, backfire or just be an impossible task to take on that's the other thing i think about big organizations is once they're mired in bureaucracy they become rather like inflexible and rigid and it might be the case that it's it's not just that you can go in and own a company and do everything that you want to right away because you really have to understand how it's how it's built and how it's run and how to get people to react and, and want to build with you. And I just I just don't know enough about what that's gonna mean for the company. Cause if we look at, you know, a, a parallel situation over at Facebook, at Facebook when people didn't like what the management was doing, they started leaking all the things. And it could uh, set up a situation where there are people then at work, that are working at Twitter that are also seeking to undermine its m- the mission of the leadership.
0: I would think Twitter is especially, uh, everything you said is true. And I would think Twitter is especially a hard, big social media company to run just base, based on how well the company has not done compared to its most immediate competitors, which is one of the things that made it vulnerable to a takeover bid from Elon. but. I think one thing we can conclude about all of this is that a takeover, particularly a takeover of a social media company, in particular, the future of how social media plays out when you get to the kinds of scale we're talking about, it is impossible to predict what will happen, which is a good lead-in to today's guest, Joe. That is Joaquin Quinoneiro Candela. Joaquin's a technical fellow at LinkedIn, where he focuses on AI, overseeing both the development of the technology and its responsible use. Speaking of not exactly being able to foresee what will happen, until September last year, Joaquin was distinguished technical lead for responsible AI at Facebook, where he led the technical strategy for areas like fairness, inclusiveness, transparency, accountability. He was the guy who led the applied machine learning team there Their job was to create the algorithms that have made Facebook advertising so effective for for better or for worse. It's pretty safe to say that Facebook would not be the profit behemoth it is today without those innovations. There I think is a case of maybe people not understanding what they were building until it became something that was not what they expected. Anyway, Joaquin's now also uh, a senior fellow at Harvard Belfer Center. And a director of the Partnership on AI and an organization interested in the societal consequences of artificial intelligence. And now, Joan, let's step into the room with Joaquin Quinanero Candela. Welcome, Joaquin. You joined Facebook. In 2012, at the time you were largely an academic, although you had done some work for Microsoft um, on helping to predict click throughs on on ads at Bing. What did Facebook hire you to do and what made you excited about joining that that company?
2: Yeah, at Microsoft, I had already begun my transition from um, being uh, an academic to to shipping things into products. and 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 applying uh, ml like you said uh, to click prediction on on ads so it was clear to me that i wanted to do more of that i wanted to see ml or or ai in general go from the lab um, into the world uh, driven by driven by a passion for uh, making a a positive impact and and building useful things one important piece of context uh, around my decision to join facebook is that As a very little child, when I was three years old, my parents moved to Morocco in Northern Africa and I lived there until I was 18. So the Arab Spring in 2011 was a very big deal to me. It was personal. I I saw many friends across the Arab world uh, be positively impacted by platforms like Twitter and and Facebook. And so when I decided to join um, Facebook, it was a, a combination of, first of all, a meaningful, Technology that had the power to help people mobilize for good causes and and drive fundamental change for the better. But also, I really fell in love with the uh, engineering culture that I saw when I visited a good friend who was who was there. Um, the company just moved so fast, and people were empowered uh, and and trusted. Um, to go ahead and build things and, and ship them. So the combination of these two things made me feel, you know what, I this is where I want to be.
1: That's really interesting. I wanted to uh, double click on the situation in 2011 where we really saw the broad public adoption of social media in that time. Social media had existed prior to that. Facebook was uh, networks for college students and but uh, and Twitter was... Was around and and different advocates and journalists were using it by then but 2011 was really a revolution in technology in and of itself because you saw this interaction between the wires and the weeds you saw that people organizing online could have important effects locally and you did see these uh different movements spring up i think there was close to 1500 different occupy encampments after things kicked off in Tunisia and it strikes me that it probably would have been an incredibly exciting and optimistic moment at Facebook for not just, you know, what the technology could do, but also just the widespread adoption of social media in general. I mean, I remember this is just one story of how people were really trying to connect across Facebook. And so occupy protesters were changing their middle name to occupy boston occupy los angeles so that when you searched for those things you didn't just find you know the pages or the events but you also found people that were part of the movement and so people were kind of experimenting with the social media systems in order to make them work for them um and i was i was really interested in knowing you know so you get in and you're excited to be there. It's an incredibly technologically optimistic moment in our history. It's probably one of the most important moments in the history of the internet when people really learn to coordinate. So what kind of, what kind of stuff did you start working on? I know that you ended up in ethics and responsible AI, but um, what, what were some of the early projects?
2: It was a, it was a long road there. Facebook at the time, had a, a practice that I think is very powerful and exciting when you're a new joiner, and that's that you are generally not pre-assigned to any specific team or project. You join the company, you go through a, a long uh, induction period of uh, six weeks called bootcamp, where you learn uh, the code base, you get exposed to all of the products, you talk to the teams, and then you gravitate. It's a little bit like a, like a marketplace of sorts, right? So some teams are hiring this high demand. When I joined in 2012, I joined around the time when the company went public uh, in May, uh, 2012 and uh, revenue was uh, stagnant. It was flat and there was a lot of concern and a lot of pressure. And in many ways, Facebook as a company had not prioritized building up their ads team. And so the ads team was very, very understaffed compared to any other teams. And in particular, the engineering uh, part and the machine learning part of ads was tiny. And so I I talked to a lot of teams and I'm like, well, what's the most impactful thing I can do for the company right now? And it was clear to me that helping build the ML team for for ads was in the short term, uh, one of the most impactful things that that I could do. So that's where I started. But then very quickly, I became passionate about the idea of accelerating going from research in ML to production. And so the question for me was like, how can we Uh, build tools and platforms and services so that uh, with the engineers we have with the mlxpress we have at hand, which is not that many, and it takes a lot of work to hire more um, that we can actually ship models to production way, way faster right Um, and so that led to to skip a long story here um, <laughs> it worked and it worked so well that we went beyond ads and gradually every team um, across the company started to use the, the tools and platforms that we'd had built and as a result i ended up uh, leaving the ads team and building the applied ml or aml team for the for the entire company and that was basically phase two of my time uh, at facebook after after the time in ads um, the applied ML time was exhilarating in many ways. We built teams that range from a computational photography team that was able to turn flat photos into, into semi3D uh, photos. Um, yeah. That laid a lot of the foundation for some of the libraries we have now for augmented and virtual reality. We worked a lot on machine translation. We removed language barriers across um, you know tons of uh, tons of countries and, and languages worked a lot on ranking, on personalization. We basically fueled or, or, or built the uh, the applied ML engine for for the entire company. And then around 2017, um, I felt that that effort was on rails. It was going well. I, I know myself a little bit. I, I tend to be more of a zero to one person. So I started to become a little bit itchy and I thought, well, this thing is going well. It's going much better than I, would ever have dreamt, actually, but then I, then I kind of reset a little bit and I thought, well, what, what next? And that's where, um, looking around some, some thoughts and concerns that were latent in me from my Microsoft days, if I'm honest, Uh, and I can go into that a bit, a bit more in a second, since when I first started to work on computational advertising back in, um, 2000. Eight or nine at, at Microsoft as a researcher. Some of these concerns together juxtaposed with something very important, which is the um, fairness, accountability, and transparency community, um, st- kept kept growing. It graduated out of being a workshop that was part of the new rips. Uh, conference, the Neural Information Processing Systems conference uh, every year, which is a, one of the meccas of, of ML or, or AI. Uh, it's a conference that I've attended for 20-something years.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It graduated out. It became its own uh, separate dedicated conference. There was momentum. And at NeurIPS 2017, there was both a tutorial, a big tutorial, and a keynote by, by Kate Crawford um, and a tutorial about Salon Barocas and Moritz Hart. On, on topics like bias uh, and fairness uh, and AI. And I just became immediately fascinated, like a lot of things abruptly crystallized in my, in my mind. And I, and I knew that that is what I was going to work on next. And so I spent the remaining of my time at Facebook building out the Responsible AI team.
0: Did something change in the priorities at Facebook to shift you from uh, you know, the, the broad ML role that you had been in to fairness and accountability and inclusion.
2: It didn't take any uh, any effort to persuade Facebook, and it was also a pretty um, organic thing uh, in, in many ways. So I think th- there may be several layers to your question. So let me let me try to um, break it down. Maybe maybe into two. Um, okay. One is one is how it actually came to be, and the second one is maybe. Um, me to call the elephant in the room uh, just a context I guess um, in 2016 we of course had a very unexpected election result but 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 much more dramatic than that we saw election interference coming from uh, Russia and other places so that was a that was a concern that is something that I had not seen or even imagined when I joined in 2012. Um, I think it was 2018 was uh, Cambridge Analytica. Am I getting my dates? Yes. Uh, that correct? is right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I remember, and I'll tell you a story later if you want, if we have time, um, being invited to give a talk at uh, at a Berkeley, Berkeley um, privacy uh, conference, um, uh, which, uh, you know, the invitation was for like one week after the scandal broke. But obviously I had been invited like six months prior, right? So I still went and I still faced the audience and you know, it was interesting. It was the right thing to do, but um, it, was, it, it was these were very, very tough times. But um, for me, the way the way I lived this story on the ground, uh, end of 2017, which was, by the way, before Cambridge Analytica, but after the the elections, the elections were not on my mind, and uh, election interference was not in my mind when I when I thought of doing this. And the reason is that when I decided to work on responsible AI. Facebook had already been investing massive resources in understanding harmful content and building out the uh, integrity team. Integrity, I guess, is the local jargon we use. Uh, I still say we, although I left in September of last year. Um, Facebook uses to describe protecting the, the platform and its users from malicious content and Harmful behaviors, etc. I guess every company uses a different word: trust, health. Different companies use different words. It's integrity at, at Facebook. So that was that was being built out. I knew many of the people um, working on these issues, and so I felt like that was, you know, quote unquote covered. I say quote unquote covered because you can always argue was the investment enough or not. But in my eyes, I saw okay, there's uh, a very sizable effort there. But when I look at more fundamental issues that maybe haven't manifested themselves fully yet, or at least we're not aware of them fully yet, right, there I saw very little, uh, not zero, but it was maybe a couple of people in different places and there wasn't a, a cohesive um, effort. And that's where I, I just very casually, I, I talked to my boss, uh, Mike Schroepfer, our, our CTO at Facebook, to my very good friend, Margaret Stewart, who has led various parts of design across the entire company and who was also thinking about what to do next. We were both chatting and I, I just started to float the idea. I'm like, we really need to dive into AI ethics. Um, I think it's, it's one of the most important things that we need to be looking at. And I, again, coming from NeurIPS um, and all these talks about bias and fairness, I, I felt like, wow, this is such a deep and different area it it didn't feel like an engineering problem to me it felt like much more and i learned this lesson painfully uh, Mm -hmm. when i attended uh fairness accountability and transparency in new york in march 2018 i don't remember who the philosopher is that i was talking to in a bar so it was really the proverbial an engineer and a philosopher working to a bar and i was super excited about oh i'm um, I've been reading all these papers, and um, and I can see that there's all these conflicting mathematical definitions of fairness, and they're mutually incompatible. But that's not a problem because that's why we invented drop-down menus. You know, we'll just sort <laughs> of say, "What do you want to do?" You know, equal treatment, demographic parity. You know, you 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 name it, right? Um, and and you know, we'll let the engineer choose, and then we'll. Uh, Try to debias the data and the predictions accordingly, and then we're done, right? And then these philosophers, sort of slow motion, turn their back to me, and they're like, "Okay, we're done. You know, talking here. You don't." Another engineer who doesn't get it, and then and eventually I I got it, right? Um, I think I got it. I'm I'm still getting it, to be honest. Um, I'm actually I'm actually going to class now. I'm uh, Stanford is next door, and I'm. I'm sitting there in class um, with political scientists and philosophers to try and, and learn. But sorry, I, I'm taking a, a very long way to answer your question. To me, on the ground, it felt very organic. I, I saw a gap. I saw an area that was not um, uh, populated, funded, And I said, hey, I don't know. I have no idea what this is going to look like. But I know for sure that we need to invest heavily in um, AI ethics. And then my boss, uh, Mike Schreffer, we call him Shrep internally. Um, we'll call him. Um, he said, uh, Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so I teamed up with people like Margaret, who um, as an advisor and friend who would sort of really help me look at things uh, sort of in a, in a zoomed out way. And then I, I got started and I picked um, fairness as a as an area to go and and learn and, and try to figure out. I see.
1: Okay. Can uh, I wanted to ask a bit about fairness here? Because when you were part of the fairness flow team that that really was trying to to deal with the misinformation question and the degree to which harmful content was reaching public, uh, the public at, at what seemed to be very, very high volumes from the perspective of a disinformation researcher. It just felt like there was a torrent of stuff going on on across all platforms, not just Facebook. And one of the big key questions was, could these products operate at the scale that Facebook and Twitter and YouTube were demanding uh, that they work? Is there, so one of the things that kept coming up in my field as we were looking at these technical systems and their design, it, it seemed to fall back on this trade off between you get a trade off between scale and community safety. Can you talk a little bit about what? Fairness flow was and how it was difficult, even though you had the green light to go ahead with pursuing these questions, implementation of the actual products became harried because of, you know, world politics, particularly national politics in the US, uh, made it really difficult, from my perspective, for any of these social media companies to change how their products worked uh, because it was so difficult to implement uh, enforcement at scale of the terms of service. And I read the Fairness Flow conversation as one about building products that would at least help with spotlighting harmful content and rooting it out. But then it did seem to to get convoluted as the product did tend to zero in on disinformation that was actually beneficial to some politicians.
2: There was a lot in that question.
1: (laughs) It was like more like a help me understand this, please, because we're (laughs) outsiders looking in. Um, Yeah, I was, I was, you know, fairly hopeful that engineers would be able to at least curb some of this, these issues, Um, but it did seem to be a very tough go of it to get uh deployment to happen
2: maybe what i'll do is i'll try to give context on where uh, a tool like fairness flow fits in the in the full uh multi-layered cake um (laughs) that is that is a platform right so the the scope of a tool like fairness flow was to analyze data sets for example one thing that i've talked about quite a bit was, um, I've I've talked about predicting what um, jobs people might find interesting in in, in tools that help you find jobs near you. Or if we wanna talk about election interference, I've talked quite a bit about the work we did in 2019 around the elections in India, where we had an an army of uh, content reviewers of humans, but obviously that army Never stood a chance uh, against the volume of content uh, being shared in a country like India with 900 plus million voters, right? And maybe with the India example, the you know what is what is one implementation or procedural fairness concern? And I'm and I'm using that that term to distinguish that from the end-to-end result, right? Because when we when we think about fairness, we have to think about intent or implementation or procedures, what actions do we take? And But we also need to think about impact and outcomes and, and, and results, right? And in a platform like, like Facebook, you have the AI part that is inside that is affecting some outcomes. Back to India, uh, the one very, very concrete example is if you have an, a, a massive amount of content that needs to be reviewed by humans and and you can't hire enough humans to, to do the job because you would have to hire almost every human on the planet. Um, what, what you can do with, with AI is you can, you can discard the content that is obviously not discussing politics or obviously not discussing civic issues, right? If I'm posting a picture of my cat, we're not going to waste resources uh, reviewing that, right? But if someone is attributing some position on a critical policy in India to a politician, then we'd better check whether that's actually true or not, or, or if someone is trying to defame someone or, or, or something like that, right? So there is a, a, a concrete piece of, of AI called the, the, the civic classifier. So it, it basically classifies content into like, hey, does this discuss politics or, or civic issues or not? right? And if it doesn't, and, and the classifier is very confident that it doesn't, it's like, no, don't, don't waste human resources on, on this. But the problem is there's many languages in India, uh, many cultures, castes, and religions. And if, if your uh, classifier is not working for some of them, then maybe you're sending a lot of useless stuff to the, to the reviewers, you know, allocated to Urdu, and then maybe you're being a lot more efficient with Hindi, and so you're not protecting people equally well. And so at the, at the AI level, a tool like fairness Flow is going to analyze the data and say like, well, do we have enough training, you know, label data for all these languages, and maybe across regions as well. Facebook does not have uh data on caste and religion and maybe that's a much longer conversation on you know what demographic or what uh what dimensions should companies have data for but you can do a lot with uh region and language already and so what fairness will do is analyze data on one hand and then look at the predictions and look at the scores of risk that something is civic in nature across languages and regions and make sure that those scores are equally good equally accurate across languages and regions because the definition of fairness in that context is that you want to allocate resources as efficiently as possible across all languages and you're not going to prioritize one language over another so it's more of an equal treatment uh, approach here which by the way so now now let me just let me sort of zoom out and deconvolve de- the thing a little bit you brought up the political situation in the us so now let me let me let me zoom out a little bit mm. So we covered India and uh, I I basically tried to place flow as a tool that looks at the the data itself and at the model predictions. Now, uh, above the AI itself or those model predictions are of course things like uh, content policies, right? Do we, for example, uh, there's been cases where if you take a piece of hate speech, if you say men are trash, women are trash, should that be treated the same? Or, or are there historical reasons why you would actually decide mm. that the, the the harm that comes from from one of those is bigger than 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 the other, and that therefore in your content policies you're not going to treat these two things the same? So there are cases where you will want uh, the the fair thing, quote unquote, is is not to equalize treatment, but is more to think about equality of impact, right? And and you may mm. wanna. Have a different treatment as a, as a result and by the way one thing that maybe we should try to return later is, is the question of governance right because it will always be competing definitions of fairness that are incompatible and the question is who should decide Right. Mm -hmm. Maybe here in this conversation, the three of us can all nod and look at each other and say, like, yeah, you're right. Yeah. In this case, it should be equality of impact. But someone reasonable might come into the room and say, no, actually, I'm a the ontological person. And here's why, even though we're causing more harm to a group, we should still apply equal treatment. Uh, And we should have a debate about this. The question is, who should be involved in that debate and how do we make a decision? Right. Anyway, U.S. politics. I don't remember the year. I think it might have been 2018 where there was the. uh, the allegations that social media companies and in particular the algorithms within them definitely facebook was uh, one target but but twitter as well and probably others that there was uh, that these algorithms favored uh, liberal content and penalized uh, conservative content what does that mean it may mean that that the algorithm would amplify more uh, give more distribution to, to liberal content or to left-wing content in a way, or left-leaning content, and and, and reduce the distribution or the exposure of, of right-leaning uh, content. So those conversations were obviously everywhere. And the, the question there is like, how do you translate this into an AI or a data question, right?
1: And that's because, well, there had been an article in, I think, Gizmodo that really animated this question. And there was There's a history of conservatives and Republicans saying that they're being I mean, the birth of Fox News is this idea that conservative ideas are being suppressed in mainstream news. And so that argument to be transposed to platforms, you're right to turn it into a question of data to be able to say, well, is this true or is it a political argument?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, and and there we get again to like this um, layered cake, right? I I which I think is already important um to consider as a as an end-to-end system where I one sentence that I like to say a lot is that uh responsible AI is not primarily an AI problem. There's there's many other considerations of of product design, of policies, of goals, of ultimate metrics that sometimes can have a much bigger impact. And your your AI might be well calibrated and it might be quote unquote fair, according to some definition, but that doesn't mean that your final product um, will be because there's many other uh, factors that, 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 that get into the mix. So for me, the, that, that that question of um, amplification of content from one side or or another side, the, the most important thing for me was like, well, let's first agree on what definition of fairness makes sense here, right? If we have some content policies that describe what misinformation or hate speech or bullying or basically unacceptable content is, do we agree that we will treat every piece of content the same, irrespective of where it comes from? If it comes from a uh, an outlet or a publisher, that's maybe more on the left or more on the right. I don't care. That's irrelevant information. I, I only care about, here's our policies, right? And here's the piece of content, right? And so that was a a lens, if you think about the application of something like fairness flow in that context, it'll be like, okay, well, how do we make sure that we have procedural consistency here and we're treating all the content the same? Now, in reality, if you have some publisher that produces 10 times more misinformation or or policy violating content than another, and you're applying the same standard to, to everything, you will take down um, a much bigger fraction of content from that publisher that is just logical and consistent with the decision that you that you made. And then the debate now turns more into one of looking at outcomes and saying, okay, well, here's the outcomes. Now, do we like the outcomes that we're seeing? It's like, well, it depends, right? Are you comfortable with the, with the policies or if you're not, that's that's fine with me, but then we're in a in a we're in the domain of discussing content policies, and we're uh, in a domain of designing how do we want um, to impact different uh, publishers, right? And of course, one thing that I th- I think is, is extremely important here, um, and I'm going to go back to the philosopher and the engineer uh, in in a bar, <laughs> is that you you can't you can't really separate these things. Completely, right? Um, on one hand, I do believe that AI engineers and for, for all of the AI and ML practitioners out there who are building things, the moment you get confronted with a debate or a question that seems hard, it's probably because it is hard. And, and you should be, you should feel very, very confident and comfortable and empowered to escalate that question up and say, hey, listen, here's two different implementations that are gonna lead to very different uh, results and i should not be the one making this decision unilaterally it's extremely important to elevate those conversations all the way up
1: it's good for for us to understand this because ultimately you know when you're in the public and someone says ai you're just like i don't know what that is i've seen the twilight zone and if it Mm -hmm. means robots are going to take over our decision making then like i don't know how to handle that right and and one of the big conundrums of course is uh, this notion that AI can work without human engagement and this idea that uh, there were people at these companies that are in charge of trending or recommendation algorithms and they're putting their thumb on the scale to uh, increase the discoverability or the recommendations on their side's content, right? And so there was a lot of talk, of course, at Facebook about Joel Kaplan's position and the kind of policy work that was happening. And, you know, I've said this before, but, you know, Zuckerberg had become the highest paid content moderator in history, you know, after January 6, where he had to make these really important decisions. But uh, in a way, he was the only one that could make them at this time, because they hadn't really instituted that supreme court deliberative group uh at that point and and later when they did take on that decision to keep trump removed for now but consider that he might come back imminently i guess to to facebook and so but it's not diverse divorced from the building of these products in total Um, and i would love to hear from you sort of in this moment you know there's a lot of talk we're recording this in the midst of the invasion of Ukraine and the war that's going on and there's a lot of talk about TikTok and in Telegram as places that people are turning to information these communication platforms don't seem to be investing as many resources as Facebook has over the years in this and I'm I'm interested in your field level view about what's happening in responsible AI, which is to say that as you're as you're attuned to the kind of tools that could be built and the kind of scale that they need to be implemented at, is it like trying to roll the boulder up the hill to deal with content at this scale as a problem uh, of you know governance and as a problem of of political disinformation? Are we thinking about these systems in the wrong way if we're if we're trying to keep them massively open, and at the same time trying to mitigate the harmful effects of large-scale uh, manipulation campaigns? And that could be across any platform; it doesn't have to be Facebook.
2: Mm. Mm-hmm. I recently was involved in a in a, in a discussion, um, which was a it was a civil kind of discussion, which is not always a case, not not
1: usually, yeah, (laughs) especially if it's between engineers. I mean, goodness,
2: (laughs) engineers and philosophers sometimes. Anyway, um, it it was about the role of Facebook in, in Russia uh, as part of uh, what is going on right now. And obviously the the suppression of information that is going on within Russia, uh, you know, ranging from even like the denial that, that there's even a war going on, right? It's a special military operation, and uh, you know, removing some Nazis um, and 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 so on, right? And, and of course, when when you think about that in the context of the harms that also happen when you open it completely, I think for me the inevitable or unavoidable, very complicated truth is that these. Platforms, uh, like you said, whether it's TikTok, Telegram, WhatsApp, Facebook, YouTube, are simply um, extremely powerful and just change the change the rules of the of the game, right? And in some cases, they change them with very positive results. We talked about the Arab Spring. I think, in my opinion, my opinion is that. Russia as a as a country under a Russian society would actually benefit from having more information, not less information, and that if they were able to see what's going on, uh, then probably more people would not be okay with it, right, and then maybe do something about it. And my heart goes, by the way, to people who have who need to be avatars of their country right now. Um, so I also want to I also want to say that as an aside, no one should be an avatar of their country and no, no Russian person should um uh, have to represent uh, what is going on and what their leaders uh, are doing. So I just want want to say that uh, as well. But back to your question, I I really don't know, right? I, I mean at the, at the one extreme you could say, well, if, if the dangers are too big, let's severely restrict what social media or even like communication platforms can can do at scale because because we don't know how to govern them. But then if you do that, then you can think about the uh, autocratic regimes that uh, control information, and you're like, okay, well, are we then playing into into their hands? And obviously, um, these autocratic regimes are going to do what they do on open platforms as well, of course. But in many ways, I think there's an advantage if it happens openly because you can at least look at it. So now to your question, what do we do about it? How do we control uh, or, or govern this, this thing? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know, There is a, there are uh, amazing researchers. I wanna give a, a shout out to uh, to uh, Aviv uh, Ovadia from uh, the Belfer Center also uh, also at, at Harvard, who's looking at uh, these questions. He's uh, proposing, he's one of the people working on uh, this tool called uh, platform democracy you know, with, with the goal of opening up uh, how, we, how we govern, how we make these uh, decisions of uh, content moderation, where do we set the limits of, of freedom of speech. But I think before we, before we even can have those discussions, I think there's some basic elements of transparency that need to be there. right? So in, in many ways, once you're a, a, a platform used for communication by hundreds of millions or even billions of people, you're almost like a public utility in many ways right and look I'm not I'm not an antitrust expert and I and I have really no idea <laughs> on that, on that on that question whether breaking stuff up or not breaking it would be better for society I honestly don't know but what I what I know is that in many ways if uh, a small set uh, of platforms that I can count with my two hands uh, are used for 99.9 with many nines percent of communication between humans then maybe, there is uh, an obligation, a moral obligation, to give back to society a huge amount of transparency about what is going on on those platforms, right? So again, like I haven't thought this through uh, thoroughly, but you could imagine things like every day, every hour, right? Almost having like dashboards that tell you what content is, is dominating right now. Where does it come from? Obviously, Privacy is going to be a concern always, but a lot of the content that goes viral by definition is public. Otherwise it wouldn't go, it wouldn't go viral. Yeah. Right? It just like, wouldn't travel. Right. Exactly. Right. So, so that's fine. So then, so then just have like real-time dashboards and understand like what's going on, you know, and then you can aggregate it by publishers. Where did it come from? Right. What is the message? Do some, uh, do some, uh, semantic understanding what, what is being discussed that's on the content side, right? On the common ground versus polarization or divisiveness. know just just use some uh, some metrics on on graphs to understand how how concentrated or how localized is the information that people are 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 seeing right if i if i divide my population into cohorts you know using anything reasonable i was talking about language and uh, region in india just because those were two good proxies for other dimensions that we care about that we don't have data for let's see how diverse or how concentrated or homogeneous is the information that people are being exposed to, right? And it's difficult to judge, you know, is that the right thing, not the right thing, if it's homogeneous or heterogeneous, people have been able to self-select what cable TV they watch and what newspaper they buy anyway, right? But, but given the impact, I think just having transparency and visibility and just like understanding, I think that's where it starts, right? Before you can even talk about governance, you need to understand what's going on. So that, you know, if I I could have sort of one wish, I think that that probably would be um, the one. And it doesn't apply to any specific platform. It applies to all of them, right? You've just made a strong case for more
0: information going into the judgments that lie behind governance. But it still does beg the question of who decides? Right now, uh, content moderators, whoever, they might be, whether they're algorithms or whether they're the independent um, content moderation body at Facebook, work with the information that they have. If they had more information, they still would face really difficult problems about in those decisions. I wonder what your thinking is about how much those decisions should be socialized in your, metaphor of the public utility or the question you asked about whether these platforms once they achieve a certain scale should be considered public utilities that would suggest that there is some public role in that and yet the risks of that because governments change and governments sometimes uh, are incented to be not particularly transparent or they have their own means that carries a risk too the governance question seems like a particularly thorny one, and I know you've done some thinking about it. What, you know, where do you see light in an answer to that question?
2: Just as a, as a human being coming from Europe uh, with, uh, on one side, uh, China, on the mm-hmm. other side, the U.S. I feel like there are models of society that take different positions on how to um, um, moderate content and and different interpretations of uh, uh, freedom of expression, right? Mm. On the one extreme, we of course have the the U.S., which is my the my host uh, country where I where I live and you know where I've chosen to live with my family. I don't like every aspect of the First Amendment, uh, but uh, when I think about the alternative, the alternative isn't great either. Um, I wouldn't want to live in a in a society where the the, the government censors and prevents me from having access to uh, to information. And uh, but you know again, like I, I I am not a philosopher, and one of my biggest regrets is not to have studied philosophy. But hey, you know I'm, I still have time. I, I maybe can. Well, can you get could in, you could be it. a
1: social scientist. You know, sociologists <laughs> aren't that bad either. But I think you know because you're getting at sort of the metaphysical question about truth and how do you get access to it and who's allowed to have access to it but one of the confounding factors here and i think this brings us full circle back to your beginning uh at facebook where you were really excited by the possibilities of bringing communication to people that hadn't had this direct contact with each other the capacity to broadcast and be in touch and and build these networks that then do things in public spaces. But over the last 10 years of platforms, as we've seen politicians really screw it all up for the rest of us, right? Politicians get online, uh, journalists, you see foreign operators, and you start to see that those with the most resources have the most speech and they have the most reach on these platforms. And, And part of them being able to do that is the building of the product itself, where everything open is going to be exploited. You see, uh, shadow markets develop in terms of influencer economy, really, uh, you know, mechanical Turk is, is turned against Facebook in order to get, uh, algorithmic engagement so that it can push content further and further. And so there's a lot that happens as social media becomes more fundamental to our lives and our culture and our politics and i see the demand that people have right now for social media to give us access to more truthful content uh, even though there's um, immense growing pains in that it's actually making social media become an institution and it's making social media have to abide by some of the lessons of the past, which is if you give a dictator a microphone, he will build an army. And if you if you don't uh, intervene uh, in order to uh, ensure that people have access to the truth, uh, other people will ensure that they have access to the world's view that they want them to live in. And so it's really a question of of the masses versus these, you know, very charismatic politicians who've been able to mobilize immense resources, not just politicians, we can add in the oligarchs and the billionaires and the folks that are are building competitive technologies that uh, kind of undo the work that responsible AI is setting out to do inside these companies. And it's it strikes me that this war of position could go on and on and on uh, if we don't empower the whatever you want to call them, integrity, trust, and safety teams across these platforms. Um, because if we don't start to think about what social media as an institution could look like, and what that immense task of governance is going to require, then what you're going to see is a degrade, not just in the quality of the content, but in the the quality of our politic, the quality of our education, the quality of our our society in a lot of ways. And and so I wanted to ask you as you're thinking about, you know, you've got a new position now, you're over at LinkedIn. This is a, you know, like people will say, well, that's a big departure from Facebook, but access to jobs, that's a fundamental human right, right? Spreading out the fairness. So make sure people get recommended the same Information and they have the same opportunities. I mean, I see LinkedIn as an enormous challenge for AI, uh, especially as you're ranking search results, uh, you know, so that people get the job in the area that they're looking for. And uh, you know, so I'd love to hear a bit from you about the challenges that you're facing uh, that are exciting to you in the new position, the engineering challenges that that lay await in this. What seems like a different field, but, but is really fundamentally about some of the same core issues of content moderation and flow of information across a platform.
2: On on one hand, two, two things. So on the non-LinkedIn part of your um, uh, remarks and question, like um, Eric said earlier, one of the questions is how do we build, how do we bring uh, democracy into how um, social media platforms are are governed, like what what decisions should be put uh, put out to 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 the people, and uh, I, I don't I don't have you know answers, but I would say definitely more than what is done today for sure, um, <laughs> um, because I think we're at the one extreme, and then and then John, you were. Uh, Hinting at what editorial responsibilities does does a a, a platform have once it uh, distributes a, a significant fraction of, of, of communication, I also think, in my opinion, the answer is like, well, it's it's not zero, uh, it, it's it's more than zero, and. Um, and, I, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about things like uh, public health uh, awareness campaigns and things like that, right? Like people need to know that washing their hands is a good idea or that, you know, if you have certain uh, airborne uh, diseases, having a mask in front of your mouth is is a good idea. And, and you know, and, and yes, and there probably is some responsibility for Facebook or other platforms to actually distribute this. And And, and we've seen action, right? Like Facebook has campaigns of information about things like COVID or, or uh, where to vote and things like that, right? And at some point you can't just sit on the side and go like, no, no, you know, we'll we'll hope for the best. You cannot do that. I'm super excited to have joined LinkedIn and uh, you saw it exactly right. It is actually not that big of a, of a departure and it is very, very consistent with my passion for responsible AI. As I was thinking about what to do next, um, first of all, I thought I'm gonna take a, an indefinite amount of time off and support my wife, who's uh, gone back to rebuilding her career after 15 years of, uh, of of being at home. And so that is the most important thing. But you know, after a few months, we figured out that we can make it work and I can combine my stay at home dad role with uh, with uh, with something else. And at LinkedIn, you're right. Uh, if you think about what's going on right now, there is a revolution in the in the labor market. Maybe it's not a, a violent or explosive one, but people are changing jobs uh, at an unprecedented rate, at a rate that we haven't seen in decades. Um, we have things like uh, a year ago, uh, and this is based only on LinkedIn data. I don't know what the overall data would be, but uh, a little bit over a year ago, only one in 70 jobs in the US offered any kind of flexibility or, or hybrid mode where you could uh, work uh, remotely. Now it's like one in six and so that's pretty crazy, right? Uh, and 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 workers and job seekers have more bargaining power right now than than we've seen in a, in, a, in a very long time. So there is something going on, right? And so I'm super excited to make sure that we're using ML and and AI and data for good, and to make sure that as we connect people to to jobs, that we empower people um, equitably. Right? And, and where possible that we create opportunity for people who've been marginalized or disenfranchised. right? But also, but also that we help connect professionals and that we help, there's a lot of serendipity that goes on. And, and as you all know, one uh, source of uh, you know, perpetuation, if you will, of, 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 of status um, to the detriment of people who don't have access is to only hire people you know and to hang out only with your networks. right? and, and building bridges and helping people mm-hmm. have access to mentors and advisors and, and other people is a, is a big deal, right? So I'm, I'm super excited about all those things. The risks of AI and data reflecting biases that exist in society are always there in any application you, you make. So we need to be extremely vigilant. And there's a, you know, this is my, what is it, third or fourth week at LinkedIn. So I'm still figuring out a lot of stuff, but um, I've been very impressed. There is a, there's a very clear commitment to the mission and to the values. And, and one of the values is, is equity. And that matters a lot to me. And there's actually a, quite a lot of engineering work. There's a lot more engineering work in the ground on actually detecting uh, bias in data and in predictions on, on different uh, algorithms inside LinkedIn. So I'm super excited. I'm drinking from the fire hose. I'm, I'm learning. But um this feels right, I guess, is a is a one liner. All oh, right, well, Joaquin, I think that the world is a better place that
0: now that you and your wife have figured out how to get you back into the flow of things, uh, bringing responsible AI is clearly one of the challenges of this generation. And we have is the arc of your career at Facebook show that um, what began in optimism is now reaching a kind of reckoning that um, as Joan puts it, anything open will be exploited, and it's time for us to take the measure of that. Thank you for being an advocate for truth and for responsible use of AI for equity and fairness. And thank you for being on In Reality. Appreciate
2: you. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.
0: You've been listening to In Reality, the biweekly podcast on power, truth, and media. Our thanks to our friends at Podcast Partners who produce the show. With special thanks to Paul Blanchard, Holly Duncan-Quinn, Amelia Spooner, Lauren Faz, and Megan O'Neill. Please subscribe on our website, inreality.fm, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your listen. And if you like what you heard, please leave a review. Thanks for listening.
2: Well, wasn't that amazing? It was created and produced by podcast partners. They're really lovely people and rather good at all this podcasting guff. Find out more at podcastpartners.com.